Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Ethan said I'm your closest Anglican neighbor to the south, and it's always fun for me to be here. Often, um, because what I find is at least half the faces are new ones that I've not seen before, even though I'm here pretty often, and that's sort of an exciting type of place to be. So um, I'm glad to be here and and to to hopefully speak some of God's word tonight. Um, We're going to look at the Romans passage. If you want to have that in front of you, that might be helpful eventually. I don't know how many of you remember the... The old Saturday Night Live character Debbie Downer. Um, some of you will, some of you not. That might be too old of a character to remember, I don't know. But I looked up quite a few of the clips of Debbie Downer last night and spent way, way too much time researching my sermon in that way. But if you remember this character, the basic premise is that you know, she would show up to some very joyful event and say some very unjoyful things. And Debbie Downer is kind of a colloquial term for that type of person anyway. But, you know, there's a family gathering at Disney World, and they're all talking about how beautiful the sun is, and she's talking about how she's fighting off skin cancer. Or, you know, they're at a, they're at a dinner party, and everything's going well over cocktails, and she's talking about feline AIDS being the number one killer of domestic cats. Or, whatever. or she's showing her pictures from a recent trip to the Holocaust Museum at a birthday party or whatever. And Jimmy Fallon would always break character. He couldn't not laugh whenever this was done. It's one of the most hilarious skits I think they did. But we've all kind of been in those sorts of conversations where we're in the midst of a normal discourse and someone says something that is radically out of sync mood-wise with the rest of the conversation. They say something that's negative and really um, awkward. You don't really know exactly how you're supposed to respond to that, so usually we sort of just ignore it and move on. Um, But to me, reading Romans 8 and continuing into Romans 9 feels that way. It's a book that many of us maybe have read before. If you've not, you can go home and read it. It's not that long of a book. But if you read straight through Romans 8, it's it's this kind of glorious, very bright chapter. It's kind of the the climactic, um, kind of glorying in the security of God's elect people and his love that's kind of unconquerable in very high language um, of joy and, and brightness. And then we get what I find to be maybe the most difficult chapter in the Bible, for me personally at least. It's got some very difficult stuff in it, um, some very difficult language in the rest of Romans chapter 9. So that's what we're going we're gonna to look at and pick this passage. It's what's assigned in the lectionary, um, but I'm going to be our, our Debbie Downer of sorts for, for the night. Sorry. <laughs> um, but if you remember Romans 8, I don't, I don't know if, you, if this rings bells for you or not, but the kind of climax, the way it ends, is this nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not angels or demons or powers, nothing. Life and death, even, can't separate us from the love of God. And then we pick up immediately after that with what you have in front of you, with what we just read today. Paul rather discordantly begins talking about, quote, great sorrow and unceasing anguish of heart. He starts talking about being cursed and cut off from God. And that's not what this conversation was about, St. Paul. Thank you very much. We'd rather not talk about those things. Um, And I don't know if you've ever had 
the experience of sort of being in a, a brilliantly positive experience, whatever that might look like for you. A family gathering is, is often kind of a way that that might look, big, big joyful family gathering. And then suddenly, in the midst of that, you experience yourself, not, not someone else doing it to you, but you experience yourself, the sort of sudden pang of sorrow. You remember something, maybe, that you had forgotten until just then, that you suddenly find yourself panged with sorrow or grief of, of whatever nature. Um, I don't remember exactly what, what it was, but I do remember being at a large family gathering of my own family, the sort of Italian side, which is a fun, kind of bombastic experience most of the time, and it's a joy to be a part of that spectacle, and it's, it's just a lot of fun when we have family gatherings on that side. And I remember in the midst of one of those sorts of gatherings, my dad, in, in the midst of great laughter and joy, said, kind of quietly to the side, but I heard him said, I really wish my dad was here. This kind of sudden, sort of slicing memory of grief, sort of emptiness. I really wish dad was here. And not, like I said, I don't remember much else about the experience, but I remember that. It was a very vivid one. And that is, I think, exactly what Paul is experiencing when we turn to Romans 9. I really wish so-and-so were here. Israel's conspicuous absence from the glorious talk about God's people that we just heard is a pretty jarring thing if you stop and think about it, if you remember. The fact that the people of God, which up until then had meant the descendants of Abraham quite literally or physically, that they're not a part of this conversation, or at least in large part have rejected it, for Paul is a sudden slicing memory. This is a conspicuous uh, hole, an absence, a grief that he has. Um, and Paul will go on from here. He'll explore some ways of, of talking and thinking theologically about what's going on that are helpful. And he'll, that's what he'll do in, in the rest of chapters 9 through 11 is explore that theologically and ask what's going on. But I'm going to ask us to just stay here in this uncomfortable moment for a bit tonight. That's where this passage leaves us. We don't move on just yet. Um, for Paul, it's clearly a full stop in his letter, in his writing. And if you heard the way it ends, it's a climactic mention of Jesus the Christ and then amen. You don't too, too often say amen, so be it, in the middle of a, a letter. You kind of save that for the end, usually. But he, he makes a full stop here and says amen. Um, and so I think we're sort of invited to stop here for a moment with him. So if you're looking at this passage, it, it begins with this kind of intense swearing of earnestness or sincerity. So Paul really means what he's about to say. He says, quote, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So he's invoking two persons of the Trinity. He's invoking God himself. Christ and the Holy Spirit, I swear to God, he says, I, I have this sorrow and anguish in my heart. I'm not lying. I'm being sincere. The point being that this is not, this is not for rhetorical effect, this part of Paul's letter. The intensity of his language, the sorrow and the grief that he's expressing isn't a, 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 an act of rhetoric, which Paul's capable of. He is a great rhetorician, but that's not what's going on here. He says, I swear to you, I mean what I'm saying, and I mean it fully. 
we all, we all know kind of what it looks like to exaggerate for effect. I would I'd do anything for fill in whatever the blank is, Klondike bar or whatever. Air conditioning system is usually what I would do anything for in my church. But we know the difference between that sort of rhetorical exaggeration on the one hand, and then on the other hand, those moments where we really would do anything to have the course of events be different from what they are. I would do anything to remove her cancer. I would do anything to bring him back. I would do anything just to stop feeling the way that I do right now. I would do anything. And that's where Paul is in this passage. I would do anything to have the Israelite people see and receive Jesus for who he is. It's so personal for him. He says, for my brothers, according to the flesh. And that kind of brother and sister language is usually something that Paul reserves for the church. So so the the kind of closest bond that you can have in the blood of Jesus, Paul usually reserves the language of brotherhood for that. But here he refers to his kind of literal physical brothers. His brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, he calls them. His family. Quite literally. I think, right? Put yourself in Paul's shoes. This is first generation stuff. Probably quite literally, his family, his parents, his brothers and sisters if he had them. Where are they in all of this? Paul sees them cut off from God's heavenly kingdom because of their refusal of Jesus. That's a pretty heavy thing to think. So you can understand maybe some of the force of what he's saying when he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my family. I've never kind of quite been able to wrap my head around that, but as I was preparing to preach this time around, I kind of tried to put myself as much as I can without being an actual father into the mindset of parents. And I think maybe that would be the closest that we could get. Where you would do anything. You'd be accursed yourself to relieve the curse from them. The way that we often put it is, I would switch places you in, with you in an instant if I could. I would take your place. Of course I would take that for you. I would switch places with you in an instant. And so that's where Paul is. His family, um, this conspicuous absence and his grief over that is a very, very intense thing for him. And then the tone changes just slightly. <clears throat> Paul begins to express... Um, after the grief of it, the sorrow, he begins to get a little bit more agitated, or at least that's the way I feel it when I read it. He begins to express a real sense of dismay about the whole thing. I think uh, most of the kind of intense consternation that we're familiar with tends to come from children. So uh, they're allowed to say things that we're not allowed to say as adults, and so they express themselves very clearly often. But a, you know, a little boy or a little girl would be unhappy with X given scenario, and they will express that in kind of ever-increasing pitch of voice, so higher and higher tones. It's, I don't want to go to the grocery store. I hate grocery shopping. Why do we always have to go grocery shopping? It's not fair. And it's like this sort of, you can't even hear them anymore. And we as adults think it's hilarious because it is. We, we laugh at that or we, we find it to be a comical display of sort of utter overwhelmed consternation. And we have to try as, as adults in those situations 
not to laugh out loud at them, at least, because for them, this is a real experience of, of intensity, but it's, for us, it's comical. We hear that increasing pitch of voice higher and higher. Um, and I think in this passage, you can hear St. Paul's voice getting higher and higher as he gets more and more worked up. Um, of course, it's not comical in this instance, but his pitch rises. You know, how can this be? strikes me as an almost angry sorrow or anguish that he's experiencing. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Chapter 8 is spent glorying in our security as God's chosen people. What about God's chosen people? His elect. What about Israel? And this agitated question for Paul seems really to raise the whole problem of evil, which is really the direction that that chapter 9 takes. It's what all our most intense crises always do, is put us face to face with these impossible questions, that when it comes time to believe in Jesus the Savior that God sends, God does not give the gift of faith to the very people to whom he promised that Savior. We believe that. I I, I don't believe in Jesus because I'm smarter or wiser or better. God grants the gift of faith and we believe. And so why sometimes and not others? This kind of ultimate question of if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then what is this all about? I think that ought to resonate with other things that we think about in your life personally or nationally or whatever. Paul will go on in this chapter, and a lot can be said about how it comes to be the case that the Israelites are not a part of this, how that happens, how decisions are made, um, how faith becomes the, the binding thing that inheritors of Abraham um, step into. But in the midst of that explanation of how, that does not cut to the question why. Why does God soften some hearts and not others? Um, it's become a fairly common thing now, particularly on college campuses, although I sort of doubt maybe your City College campus but to give trigger warnings if you're going to talk about something very sensitive. Um, we can make light of that because we've, we're sort of oversensitive in many ways. I think maybe sometimes it's a good idea to give people a heads up if you're going to talk about something particularly sensitive. But the truth is, of course, anything you talk about could be very sensitive given someone's background. Anything could be triggered by anything, I suppose. Um, but regardless of whatever you think about that, I did not give any sort of trigger warning before diving into this passage other than a comical reminder about Debbie Downer. But if you're really hearing St. Paul in any of this, I think it probably should be triggering something for you. I hope that if it is, it's nothing current, these questions of why, but it could be. I'm sure for some of us it is. And if it's not current, then certainly you've been there before. And this can trigger those memories or those traumatic experiences when you were just as upset 
as Paul. And it's pretty likely that you'll be there again. It's not fair. Why? How could God allow this? I refuse to believe that it had to be this way. So why, why read a passage like this? Why include it in the canon of the scriptures? Why do this to ourselves on purpose? You know, why, why deliberately trigger a confrontation with the problem of evil? This is the worst preacher I've ever heard. <laughs> I come to church to be inspired, not to be depressed. One of the most meaningful principles that I've come across in counseling, both in being counseled myself and also in offering counseling, one of the most important principles is just the simple principle of moving toward. That that is far more often the answer to whatever sort of crisis we're in than we think. To move toward rather than away whatever it is from whatever it is that we're encountering. And so that's almost always the right wisdom regarding hard conversations. Move toward it, not away. That's how deeper interpersonal communion happens. And it's not easy, but that's just how it works to move toward. And insofar as we receive this letter of St. Paul's to be the word of God, which is the church's claim, this is the word of God. Insofar as we receive this letter to be the word of God, then it's God triggering this hard conversation. This is God speaking to us, acting among us to prompt this. It's, it's God moving toward us. God does not seem to be afraid of the problem of evil. We, we do theodicy, we defend God, but he doesn't seem to be too scared of it or seem to need defense. He gives us letters like this, he gives us the book of Job, he gives us many psalms that end without clear resolution. Because I think it's these sorts of moments that bring us face to face with God most intensely. At least that's certainly how it's worked in my life. It's not always the most pleasurable experience with God, but it is often the most intense and the deepest communion um, when we move toward. And I think that deep down at the center of it all is what God is interested in. You. And so he moves toward you. Even if it means triggering things that you'd rather not think about. Even if it means throwing passages at this like us when we might have rather chosen another. These laments, these confrontations with the problem of evil, um, they always end in the same way, or at least very similarly. And the end is not an answer to the questions raised. The end is a person. Like I said, Paul will, will go on in the following couple of chapters to try to think carefully about all this, to answer the question about God's relationship with Israel. But if you keep reading the rest of chapter 9, you're not going to find the answer neatly solved. You're not, you're not going to find a clear system that will put all of this in order for us. In fact, the opposite. When Paul is pressed, when, when he's really asked, how is this fair? If God is sovereign, as what you're saying is true, then how can he find blame? And what does Paul say? He says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? That's Paul's answer. That's God's answer. It's the same at the end of Job. Job cries out for chapters upon chapters. How is this fair? How does this make any sense? What's going on? And eventually God does show Himself, but He doesn't give any answer to Job whatsoever. He says, were you there when the foundations of reality were laid? Did you defeat dragons? Can you rule the sea? And it's the silencing encounter with God Himself that it always leads to. It's not an intellectual answer. And thinking about it will not bring you peace. But experiencing it can, although that's not something we can force. We have these things handed over to us to provoke the conversation, to make us move forward, but you can't force God to show Himself. We can only follow Job and St. Paul and all the other saints who have suffered, which is to say all the other saints. We can only follow their example and keep banging on that door, continuing to cry out until God does show Himself. In the meantime, God has given us the final and absolute sign of His presence. He has shown Himself. He has given us the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And here is the saving word. If this Jesus is truly God, is the whole Christian claim. In fact, it's even Paul's claim. Even in the heart of his most intense lament, it's still Paul's claim about the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. If that's who Jesus is, if God was present in all His fullness in the cross and resurrection of this Jesus, then we know that no matter what else, it is mercy and grace that have the final word. And so when we come face to face with this God, which is where these desperate laments always ultimately lead, then our consternation can't help but melt and surrender and find relief and peace. Which is what we see in Job. He throws himself on God even after receiving what seems like, after receiving what seems like an intellectually unsatisfying answer. That provokes Job's utter surrender and communion with God. And so, throw yourself again on that God tonight. Come and meet that Jesus again face to face. Receive the gift that He offers of Himself. The gift of every evil satisfied. The gift of every death swallowed up in life. And find in Him your rest. Amen? Amen. Amen.